Welcome to the Primal Pioneer, a no-nonsense podcast teaching you how to rewild your life and heal your body using nature's medicine kit. I'm your host, Heather Shepard, classical homeopath, author of The Sunlight Rx, and alternative healer. For the past decade, I've been helping people overcome acute and chronic health disorders and brain injuries using a 100% natural approach. Enjoy this episode and subscribe to this podcast to stay informed about your body, your health, and how to lead the healthiest life possible, even amidst our crazy modern world. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today I'm going to talk about raw milk. And uh, we're going to deep dive into this topic. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of history. There's a lot that's been um, swept under the carpet. There's a lot that our government uh, ignores and, um, you know, has shamed and blamed with regard to raw milk. That's absolute nonsense. And um, if you're someone out there who's skeptical about raw milk or, you know, you are worried or anxious about potential pathogenic bacteria being in raw milk, this episode should really help to clear the air there and should help you make more informed decisions around, you know, raw milk, raw milk products if you so choose to pursue this food. Um, Now, I've always been a proponent of real food, ancestral foods, this including raw milk and um, you know, I grew up on a farm. We raised our own cattle. My dad hunted wild game. We raised our own chickens. We always had a garden. And my mom was one of the rare mm, mother species at that time. You know, the 90s, this wasn't really a time to, you know, go and do farm things and make your own lard and make lard pies and make sauce from scratch and can your tomatoes. You know, it wasn't really... That wasn't really prominent at that time. More and more women especially were moving away from that kind of lifestyle more towards the industrial, you know, desk job kind of lifestyle. And, you know, many women are are just naturally driven and people in general. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not pigeonholing women by any means, but, you know, not everyone wants to farm and make things from scratch. So that's just the beauty of diversity in this world. But, you know, specifically at that time, when I was growing up, uh, uh, more and more uh, women, it seemed at that time, were wanting to go out, be industrious, not be a stay-at-home mom. And today I feel like that is shifting more and more so, especially, um, you know, women uh, and men more and more so now are want, being more drawn to farming, going back on the land, doing the homesteader life. And um, and so we're kind of returning to these ancestral primal roots in a way, whether it be starting our own farms or just simply eating nourishing foods that are grown on these kind of organic grass-fed farms. So, you know, my wild ancestral roots they they run deep they go back to my childhood and how I was raised and you know now this whole topic and exploration around raw milk raw dairy has come back into my circle because um Jen and I are getting ready to buy land and start a farm and so part of that farm is going to include 
uh, you know, animal husbandry, having animals on the land, animals to farm. And initially, when I started to, you know, visualize and vision our farm, you know, I always talked about having cows on, on the farm. I'm a big fan of grass-fed meat, grass-fed cows, grass-fed dairy. Um, and so I started to buy all these books on animal husbandry. And, um, you know, I've just gone into this topic uh, to best prepare myself on how to be, you know, how how to farm once I get out there because I was raised this way. But then, you know, there was big this big chunk of, of a time frame in my life where it was like, well, I did a lot of other things. I went to college and did the college thing and, you know, worked and, you know, and then um, basically wasn't doing quote unquote farm life for, you know, uh, 15 or 20 year stretch of my life. But I'd always been drawn to eating healthy foods, organic foods, grass-fed meats, and and so so forth. So just recently, as we're really really reaching the apex here to to buying our farm, you know, I started buying all these books on animal husbandry and YouTubing things like what are the most humane ways to kill a chicken and how do you defeather a chicken and you know also how to raise dairy cows and. Um, Honestly, once I I began really learning about what it entails to raise dairy cows, um, I quickly switched to sheep. <laughs> uh, I was like, nah, I'm I'm good there, you know, I'm all set. Uh, I love cows, you know. Maybe my neighbor can raise them or something, but um, my focus has been to sheep. <laughs> but this whole exploration and research has led me back to raw milk. We want to sell raw dairy to our community and, of course, have for ourselves. But it's really taken me on this deep dive into raw dairy, into pasteurization, into foodborne illnesses, you know, what's really going on here. It's taken me into this exploration around the gut microbiome right because um especially the the following episode here uh next week is going to talk a lot about the gut microbiome its connection to dairy its connection to our dairy intolerances and so forth but um you know i've gone on this deep dive into farming animal husbandry raw dairy and um so we've been told a lot of basically uh, lies around uh, raw milk and raw milk and, and dairy just in general. You know, most people today, they're like, yo, you know, you talk to them, I talk to them on the uh, phone, we have a Zoom session, they're like, I, I ask them, do you eat dairy? And it's always this, I shouldn't say always, it's often this response that's backed with self-defense. It's like, Oh, I know I shouldn't, but I have been eating more yogurt or milk or, you know, whatnot. There's been a lot of shame and blame around dairy consumption because we're told it's pro-inflammatory, that it causes chronic diseases, and that it causes things like estrogen dominance in the body, and it's a total line of BS, um... Our inability to mm, process dairy, our bodies absorb, assimilate, digest dairy 
in ways that don't trigger digestive or skin complaints is 100% dependent on, or I should say, let's just say, at least 90% dependent on our health and um, other influential factors in our lives. You know, how many antibiotics we've taken, how much we've destroyed our gut microbiomes, how much pasteurized versus unpasteurized milk we've drank, and so forth. Again, I'm going to get into that in the next episode because it's a really big topic. Um, So this first episode, however, I'm going to focus on the benefits of raw dairy. We're going to talk about... um, all of the, uh, the the pasteurization that goes on for milk and other dairy products. And then um, the next one to two episodes are going to focus more on the gut microbiome, estrogen dominance, you know, all of these things we've been taught um, around dairy that I, aren't actually accurate. And I'm going to give you some helpful tips and solutions as to how you can improve or, you know, start to overcome dairy intolerance. Um And that'll include, we'll talk about A2A2 milk in that episode as well. But, you know, there's a lot of juge behind the topic of dairy that's, um, you know, pretty misunderstood. And so I want to help you to um, just get a more accurate uh, perspective on on dairy. So today's episode will focus on pasteurization, how this impacts health, um, and how it it contributes to dairy sensitivities or, uh, you know, lactose intolerance. And I'm going to start by talking about why we started pasteurizing raw milk in the first place. We're going to take a look at foodborne illnesses, particularly E. coli 0157, the pathogenic bacteria that we're told causes foodborne illness. And uh, and then I'm going to share some, some root causes of um, our foodborne illnesses. Actually, that'll probably have to... Um, you know, transition, be a transition point into the next episode because it has a lot to do with our gut microbiome, the state of it, the health of it, um, and how we've destroyed it with a lot of different practices and medicines and so forth. Um, But really, the basis here is I want to give you a more accurate uh, perspective on dairy. Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Um, How can you overcome your dairy intolerances or, or at least start to improve the way your body handles dairy? And uh, to do so, I want to start by painting a clear picture around raw milk and pasteurization so you know all the details about raw milk. And then basically, the whole point of this is so you can also make more informed decisions for yourself and for your family if you're in the health you know, field so you can give more accurate information and suggestions to your clients or patients with regard to raw milk and dairy products in general. So... Louis Pasteur's work um, really, you know, that was done in the late 1800s. You know, he came in, wanted all this work around pasteurization. And so this started to be applied in the U.S. in the early 1900s, starting with the pasteurization of raw milk. Now, the the alcohol industry was using pasteurization practices as well. But um, during this time... There was this huge migration into the States, um, and, you know, a lot of people were moving here. It was a huge influx, and one side effect of this, of course, there were thousands, but one side effect of this was um, that more and more 
whiskey distilleries began popping up. I mean, let's just be honest, who wouldn't need a drink after moving their entire life and family, leaving their old life behind and, you know, getting on a ship and God knows what happened on that ship and what food was available and wasn't and how people were treated there, you know, who knows what happens there. But I can only imagine somebody would need a drink after um, after that experience. So... Here come all these people into the U.S. and they were basically penniless, um, a lot of them giving up all their money in old life for a new way of life and living in the States. And so here come these whiskey distilleries. They began popping up, producing cheap alcohol, you know, really fast. Now, to make grain alcohol, you know, like whiskey, the grains go, go through this fermentation process until they reach a certain percentage of alcohol. And then, you know, you can bottle and sell the alcohol. However, what you have left over in this process is a shit ton of grains. So this byproduct of um, of making the whiskey produced by the distilleries, you know, first and foremost, let's just, they called this stuff slop. So if that, you know, is any reflection as to how much nutritional value it had, that word sums it up, you know, pretty, pretty well. So this byproduct produced by the distilleries was referred to as slop. Um, and they had this real surplus of it. So of course, they were like, okay, what do we do with this? Not like, let's just get rid of it or find uh, a good use for this. How can we make money off of this? But, you know, in this jankety way, you know? And so what they did was, oh, hey, let's, you know, feed it to the cows. So they started to invite uh, dairy farmers to bring their cattle to the city where, of course, grass is absent and cheap. However, the feed is cheap. So the slop was available meaning the farmer no longer had to spend money on land to raise their cattle and they didn't have to spend time, um, you know, doing all of the things that dairy farmers need to do. You know, they have to rotate pasture and there's a lot of footwork involved. No, instead, hey, bring your cow to the city, feed them slop for a cheap price. You don't have to do any work as the dairy farmer. So as you can imagine... This story didn't turn out well for humans or cows. So the farmers started milking their, their, you know, let's just call them city slickers, slop-fed cows. And they started selling this milk to the immigrants, who many of them didn't really have any money. So they're going to take what they can get at that time. The result was very sick people. People, kids started to get really sick and more and more people started getting really sick off of this slop-fed raw milk. So their solution to this problem was, you know, not let's get the cows back on their natural grass-fed diet, right? No, it was let's just pasteurize the living 
crap out of the milk and um, continue to sell it. That's what they did. That's how raw milk started to get a bad rap as this is a dangerous product. We should really avoid it and uh, we should pasteurize it. So this is uh, this is how this whole fear, foodborne illness around raw milk started and how the pasteurization of milk began to come into play. Now, you know, I talk a lot about ancestral diets and just lost, launched my uh, ancestral diet uh, and lifestyle plan. It's up on my site now. Um, and uh, we have to remember, ancestral diets came before all of these things happened. So while there may be some practices of, you know, ancestral food practices that were going on in the early 1900s, this is a time when um, our diets took a, and lifestyles, took a big shift from the more truly ancestral homesteader type of diet and lifestyle to a more modern way of eating and living. And of course, this had many, many health consequences. So this is what happened. And if you think this story is any different today, unfortunately, you're wrongly mistaken. And, you know, many people are like, oh, you know, we live in a great time that they would never feed us anything that would be dangerous for our health. Feedlot confinement. You know, I don't need to say much else, but feedlot confinement cattle, eating subsidized grains, GMO grains, laying in each other's manure, it's pretty much producing the same quality milk that were, that the uh, slop-fed cows were fed back around, you know, right before World War II. So this story is no different. Pasteurized milk sells for a profit. And um, really, this is the same exact story, just a different century. So pasteurization really is not progress. It's a way of making a, um, gosh, it's, I don't even know how to, you know, it's a way of making people feel safe about the food they're eating, but it gives them this false sense of safety. So, um, you know, just as long as something's pasteurized, it's considered quote unquote safe for human consumption. And this story just isn't fully accurate. So, I want to talk about pasteurization a little bit because it has a lot to do with, okay, how's your body going to handle this food? What does it actually do to the food? You know, and for the sake of this episode, we'll focus on raw milk because pasteurization, yeah, sure, it can kill pathogenic bacteria. But honestly, and um, I can't back this up from personal experience, but the stories I've heard from other people who... Um, they'll take uh, raw milk dairy farmers will take a sample of their raw milk to the lab and they will also um, anonymously bring in a sample of commercial milk and the commercial milk will that's been pasteurized will have a higher pathogenic bacteria load than the raw milk 
I've heard this story from so many people. Um, so interesting, huh? Um, so what does pasteurization do? It heats the milk up to about 145, 150 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 30 minutes. Your, the, the milk that you sell, the milk that's on the, the shelves today at the store that's not raw, because there are some states that you can actually sell raw milk in a store. You can go in and it's, it's um, you know, it has to be a certified raw milk dairy that's inspected by the federal. Uh, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's state regulated. I don't know if it's federally regulated as well, but I know it's for sure state regulated. They'll come in and, um, you know, test your milk and, uh, you know, inspect your facility quite frequently. So um, in order for pasteurized milk to make it on the shelf, it has to be heated to at least 145, 150 for at least 30 minutes. And of course, not only does this kill off or supposedly kill off any pathogenic bacteria, um, but it also kills off anything that's beneficial, right? That used to be living in that milk. And this includes things like beneficial bacteria because real true raw milk is a very rich source of beneficial bacteria. And the beneficial bacteria in the raw milk is actually what helps to facilitate the breakdown of the milk proteins so that your body can absorb and assimilate all the nutrients in the milk versus having some sort of, you know, autoimmune response or, um, you know, immune response to the, to the food. So, you know, pasteurization is going to kill all the beneficial bacteria, the enzymes, the nutrients. And it also does something to the proteins where it elongates the proteins in the milk. So the addition of high heat to dairy products causes the proteins to stretch and get longer. And that's key because um, the body can um, recognize this um, as potentially dangerous and then cause some sort of symptom, right? You get a uh, constipation or headache or diarrhea or eczema after you eat the dairy. Um, this is, is often a result of this elongation of the proteins that occurs when we add high heat to um to milk to pasteurize now i want to just add this in here because if any of you out there struggle with dairy intolerance um you know most people suggest hey go to cow go to goat milk or sheep milk which you can do i know a lot of people who do much better with those uh types of milk than cow milk um, but I'm, I'm going to talk here just for a minute about commercial yogurt because, um, we're told that also if you eat fermented dairy, it can, you know, there can be less of a reaction, less eczema, less constipation, you know, whatever symptoms that you may have if you're uh, aggravated by dairy, the symptoms, um, are, are said to be less if you eat cultured dairy, cultured dairy, sour cream, yogurt, you know, things that have a lot of probiotics, beneficial bacteria in them. However, I want to pop this in here because um, commercial yogurt can be especially problematic for those with dairy sensitivities. So if you try yogurt after someone said, hey, maybe try cultured if you have a sensitivity and you'll do better, some people can actually do worse. And this depends on the type of yogurt. And this is because... Um, 
What people have found over the years of making yogurt is that if you heat the milk up even higher to 185 degrees Fahrenheit for a period of time, the milk proteins will get super long because this causes the yogurt to develop this thick creaminess that we know today as like, oh man, who doesn't love thick creamy yogurt? I mean, it's the best, right? But um, what happens is when we heat the yogurt up to this temperature, for a prolonged period of time, yes, you get this creamy, like, deliciousness. But if you're somebody who really has a sensitivity to dairy or you, you know, just don't do that well with yogurt or other cultured products, this can be why. Because the the proteins get so stretched out, so long, elongated, um, the higher we uh, heat up the milk and the longer we heat that milk up for. So, you know, real yogurt... And maybe some of you have experienced this who, you know, maybe shop for yogurt or raw yogurt or um, grass-fed yogurt at your local farmer's market. That real yogurt actually doesn't have that super thick, dense creaminess to it. It's a lot more runny, Um, especially cow or excuse me, especially goat or sheep because it simply doesn't have the fat content that uh, cows have but real yogurt in general is going to be much more runny it's not going to have this thick uh, thickness to it because there's going to be less heat it's going to be unprocessed and of course this is going to be much better for you so if you're someone who struggles with a dairy intolerance I would um, I would really suggest uh, seeking out yogurt or cultured dairy that that hasn't been commercialized and heated up to such extreme temperatures so basically all the nutrients are burned up in the pasteurization process and then what you're left with is basically a dead food so the response right in turn to that is oh let's just fortify it add some vitamins put in some vitamin a and vitamin d you know and uh, put in some beneficial bacteria strains and minerals and call it a day good right Fortified foods are an absolute train wreck for your health. They will create all the diseases that that food is supposed to cure. Like, for example, let's just take dairy and it's fortified. If you drink fortified dairy products, you know, vitamin D rich milk. Hmm. Not such a great idea. It's going to cause the diseases it's said to prevent. So that's things like osteoporosis, leaky gut, um, bone issues, absorption and uh, assimilation issues, yes, those things will all skyrocket. Leaky gut, bone loss, nutritional deficiencies, the list goes on and on when it comes to the uh, not so uh, fortunate side effects uh, that pasteurized dairy products actually cause. I also want to mention that raw milk contains certain enzymes especially lactase that makes the milk more digestible when you eat it this enzyme is totally destroyed in the heating process this is why some people do much better with raw milk dairy products than pasteurized dairy products because the enzymes are still there they're still intact Uh, the beneficial bacteria are still there and still intact that your um, your digestive system needs in order to absorb, assimilate, and process the milk and utilize all the delicious bioavailable proteins and calcium, vitamin A and vitamin D that are contained within raw milk dairy products. 
it's a superfood when we just get out of the way, you know? Human manipulation to food is the biggest problem, honestly. So, um, we've really been trained to think and to believe, especially since all of the illnesses that started when we started to drink the raw cow milk from mm, the slop-fed cows, you know, since then, our fear around bacteria and contaminated food has literally gone off the charts. Most people today are terrified of raw milk. They're terrified of, um, you know, things like raw fish and sushi and, you know, it's unfortunate. But, you know, we have to be aware of some things. We have to be informed of some things. We don't just want to buy raw milk from anyone. And I'll talk a little bit about how to make informed decisions at towards the end of the episode around your raw milk dairy consumption. But, you know, literally we've we've just been trained to believe just point blank in general that um, raw milk's harmful, bacteria are dangerous, and um, literally we've been taught to believe and trained to believe that all the good things for our health are actually harmful. It's a total mind F, right? Sunlight's bad for us. Meat's bad for us. Animal fat's bad for us. Raw milk's bad for us. And um, we've been told that all the things that are actually good for us are bad for us. So it's a real mind trap here. The establishment has taught us to fear, you know, the very things that are actually the most supportive to our health and our well-being. And so today, of course, as I'm mentioning here, many people fear, fear bacteria, including potentially dangerous bacteria in raw milk. But, you know, let's just take a few minutes here. Let's take a closer look because there are really, um, there are many potential pathogenic bacteria that can make their way into raw milk. And it's not just the 157. It's not just the E. coli, you know, 157 bacteria that is potentially dangerous. There's other potentially dangerous bacteria that we have to be cognizant about. Tuberculosis bacteria. These are can be found in milk. Um, what's some other ones? Uh, John's disease bacteria, Q, Q fever bacteria, um, the Campylobacter bacteria. These bacteria can also be present in unpasteurized raw milk. But only the 157 is what we hear about in the media and in the news. So I just want to bring a little bit of attention to this because why could this be? Well, you always got to think money first, right? Who's who's making money off of this? So downtown Seattle is home to literally the nation's biggest E. coli firm. And... um. You know, there aren't other law firms specifically specializing in the other pathogenic bacteria that I mentioned. At least I didn't find it. If you find it, you know, feel free to email me. I haven't found it. So truth be told, there's much more money in the 157 E. coli bacteria being an issue. They basically benefit on 157 injury. And so, um, you know... I'm always like, is it really the E. coli? You know, maybe in some instances, I'm not going to say never, but there's other foodborne bacteria that are at play, that can be at play. And, um, 
you know, we all we always hear the um the issue being one five seven injury due to foodborne illness contaminating our spinach and our raw milk, and uh, one reason why, uh, it's because where this is where the money's at. Okay, they make bank on E. coli injuries, but I also want to help you understand the role of E. coli in cows and in um in our gut as well and uh what's its role here because you know we don't really know much about it we just hear on the media that e coli has caused somebody somebody's kid to die or somebody to be hospitalized and so we're then like oh let's um triple wash our spinach in chlorine water right it's total it's a, it's just one there's a lot of money behind it and two it's completely um there's a lot better ways to go around it but let's just understand the role of e coli a little bit because it's not the bad guy we make it out to be and and I'm going to go about uh, um in the, in the more detail about this in the next episode but the way your body responds to pathogens including 157 is more so an accurate marker as to your own health not the the effect of the pathogen of the bacteria how your body responds to the bacteria tells me the state of your health and so we are quick to blame the bacteria the bacteria are the problem so we heat the food up and the milk so high that everything living in it kills you know everything in it and then we you know triple wash our spinach and chlorine water killing everything in it the 157 the bacteria often aren't the problem unless you take your spinach and roll it around in cow crap and then bring it in and eat that raw then i'm gonna have to say yeah that could that could cause the digestive issues that could problem that could be problematic to your health but the amount of e coli typically found in something like raw milk or spinach um your body should be able to handle that and i'm going to talk about that in the next episode because we need to understand this a little bit better instead of pointing the finger at hey it's the raw cow milk and raw spinach so um this bacteria the 157 coliform is present in the guts of cows Okay, E. coli is a key bacteria in their digestive juices that's needing to break down, needed to break down their food. It helps contribute to this acidity that helps to break down their food. And for this reason, when the cow goes, it's chewed on its cud and now it takes a shat, some of the E. coli comes into the stool, lands on the ground naturally. Now, you know, the, uh, professional experts say to avoid raw milk because when a cow dumps its load that it basically sprays its feces all over its teats <laughs> um well if they were to just like walk out into the pasture or just like take a look at a cow they'd actually see that the cow doesn't just poop all over itself <laughs> right but cows are not discriminatory as to where they lay down so 
they will lay down in their own manure or the manure of their friends and family. No problem. They don't care. It's not a big deal to them. They don't care. Um, so you can just imagine that um, the more space a cow has, the more pasture it has, the less likely they are to lay in a whole bunch of their scat. And that the cattle in confinement operations are, you know, that's a whole other story. And um, let's say some of the E. coli ends up, actually does end up on the cow's udder, right? And um, you can actually clean the udder in order to remove any of the, the feces that may have gotten on there when they, uh, when they did lay down. And this makes feedlot, um, this is just a whole other thing for feedlot confinement raised cattle. It's like they're going to be way more prone to having much more E. coli in their milk because uh, there's nowhere to go and everybody's laying in each other's feces. It's a complete disaster. If you've ever driven by one of those confinements, you, I literally, every time Jen and I drive through Texas, I actually think I'm going to vomit when I go by these confinement centers with, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cattle just like waiting in their own crap. And, um, they milk the cows and, and then that's the milk on your grocery stores. And we think that that's a really good it's a good solution. It's a good product. You know, it's pasteurized. It's safe. And we get on board with that. It's a total, it's just so inaccurate. So, you know, if you just wash the cow also and uh, soap, water, and something that you can also uh, use, I've been reading about is Lugol's iodine solution. Iodine um, is a natural disinfectant. So um, we can take really these basic fundamental measures to help avoid any of the scat that may be on um, the udders before milking and remove it and so to really reduce the the risk of foodborne illness but let's just say a small amount of the E. coli ends up in the milk the human body let's just say the human body has the ability to fight off some pathogens many pathogens yet we're told that 157 isn't one of them they're not one of the pathogens that our body can handle. I'm going to say I absolutely beg to differ about this. And like I said, my next episode will go into the, to detail about this very subject. So, so just hold that thought. If you've been told or hear that 157, your body has no idea what to do with it. It's a death sentence. And uh, if you come in contact with it, there's no saving you. Like, let's just be honest here. It's a total bag of cow dung. So, number one, we should be able to handle some pathogenic bacteria without dying or, you know, needing to be hospitalized. Number two, the amount of E. coli in the cow's intestines, right? Because this bacteria, it's in there. They need it to help digest their food. The amount of E. coli in the cow's intestines is directly correlated to their diet. So what do we know about cows? Cows are ruminants. Ruminants eat grass, or at least they're supposed to eat primarily grass. The grass passes between their two stomachs during the digestive process, and, um, you know, they 
they have a lot of bacteria in there that break down the grass. E. coli is one of them. Most of the cattle today, however, are not raised on grass, but they're raised on a grain-fed diet of subsidized grains, of GMO corn, of, um, you know, let's just, the, the slop diet is basically what they're eating today. You know, it's no better. It's absolutely no better. Potentially worse. We have GMOs now. They didn't have GMOs then. So I'm going to actually go out on a limb and say the, the, the slop feed from the whiskey can, you know, operation. Hey, we were probably doing, you know, the milk was probably better quality than, than all the subsidized grains that they're fed today. So just my two cents, but, um, you know, they're fed subsidized grains this makes labor less intensive. They don't have to rotate them on pasture. You don't have to be a farmer to have a cow. I'm sorry, but this is a subject I'm pa- very passionate about. If you have a dairy operation and have a thousand head of cattle that are lounging in their crap and you feed them a bucket of grains and you think that you're a farmer, I mean, no judgment, but you're not a farmer, okay? It's just like, let's be real. So they don't have to do any of the farming. They just have to like make sure the animal doesn't die so that they can make a profit off of it. So here's the thing. The more grains a cow is fed, the more E. coli that is, uh, that's needed in their stomach. So there'll be more E. coli present in order for the cow to break down the grains. So literally their body will start to produce more and more E. coli to help break down their food. So there's going to be more E. coli present in the manure. And then they're going to sit down in this manure in their confinements. And then, well, what's going to happen is that's going to be more in the milk. But pasteurize it and hopefully it'll go away. And then drink it and like, there you go. So... If you transition a uh, grain-fed cow to grass and put them on grass, within five days, 80% 80 of the E. coli is shed from their gut. Problem solved. Put the freaking cow on the diet it's supposed to eat, okay? So most of our health issues and food illnesses actually occur, as I said, when man starts to manipulate nature. If we just put the cow in its natural environment, we can... Uh, substantially reduce the uh, amount of foodborne illnesses that we experience today, let alone all the health issues that come along with eating cows-fed grains and subsidized grains and GMO grains. Cows, you know, why else do they put them on grains is because it fattens them up really quickly and uh, they're going to gain weight uh, way faster on a grain-fed diet than a grass-fed diet. Cows will, will gain weight on grass, but it's at a slower rate than as they would on grains. It's all about profit. It's all about dollars. So it's not about human health and certainly not about the well-being of the cow. Like, just forget that. Back to the question. Is raw milk safe for human consumption? Here's the deal. You have to know your farmer. Or better yet, get your own cow, sheep, goat, whatever, you know, animal to milk. Get your own animal to milk. And, um, or get to know your farmer, know your farmer. And, you know, 
literally ask your farmer how they go about their pro- the process. Do they wash the teats before they milk the cow? Right? Is the cow eating mainly, you know, grass? Is the majority of their diet grass? Some states, few states can sell raw milk at retail stores. You go into the store, boom, there you go, on the shelf, raw milk. That's freaking awesome. I can't believe it hasn't been outlawed yet, you know, but um, but hey, it, 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 it's great. I'm glad it's in some states. There's many, most states you can't do that, but you know, you got the, um, you got California, you got Arizona, you got New Mexico, um, there's some other states in there that you can go into, you can sell raw milk at retail stores. Um, but you can't just like have your own dairy cow, milk it, and then bring it into a retail store. No, these, these raw milk dairy operations test the milk regularly and they have to wash the, the teats in a specific way. And, uh, then they have to rapidly cool the milk. I want to bring this in here because I'm not somebody who's scared of bacteria, you know, if, you know, many people are, and, you know, if you, if you are, it's, it's a fear to, um, you know, work with and work through, you know, I have a lot of other fears, like, but bacteria isn't one of them. Um, so I want to bring this, this part up here because it's important to know when you're seeking out, uh, your raw milk. Okay. And, um, so what happens is, is that if you're a certified raw milk dairy, meaning you can sell your raw milk in for retail at the store, or even if you're a certified raw dairy, uh, and people come to your farm to get the milk, either way, this is, this is the same rule and regulation is that you have to rapidly cool the milk down. And so when the milk comes out of the udder, it's about 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. This is actually... There's a perfect breeding ground for pathogens, you know, both beneficial and pathogenic. So if the otters are cleaned well and there's no mastitis, we can pretty much say the likelihood of a pathogenic bacteria that's going to cause foodborne illness is really going to be extremely low, if neg- if not negligible. But <clears throat> also, after the... um after you milk the cow, 98.5 degrees uh, is the temperature of the milk. This also is a breeding ground for beneficial bacteria such as acidophilus and other lactobacilli. It allows them to proliferate. This helps improve the digestibility of milk. So certified raw dairy farmers have to cool their milk to 40 degrees Fahrenheit within two hours of milking to prevent any bacteria from proliferating. The faster you can cool that milk down, the less likely there is to be uh, any pathogenic bacteria. But it also is going to lessen the amount of beneficial bacteria in that milk as well. So I really just want you to understand this so you can make the best decisions for you and be most informed around this topic of raw milk as possible. Of course, this has its pluses and minuses, and of course, the pluses definitely far outweigh the pasteurized milk. If you have to choose between raw milk from a certified raw milk dairy that has to rapidly cool their milk versus pasteurized milk, you know, it's a no-brainer. But I wanted to mention that because, um, you know, some people who have issues digesting milk, absorbing, assimilating milk, and you go the, go the raw milk route, and you happen to live in a state that sells raw milk in the re- for retail, you know, but you still react adversely, 
this could be one reason why, okay? So, if you are out there and you're like, hmm, why, you know, I love milk, but where do I find raw milk? You can, um, there's a couple ways you can do this. You can go to realmilk.com and um, it lists raw milk farmers by state. And so you can look and see if there's one in your area. You can go to the Weston A. Price Foundation website. And uh, Weston A. Price has something called chapter leaders, which um, is very common that big cities, rural rural towns, that there's a chapter leader in all of these areas. You know, usually, all, usually, you know, every state has chapter leaders and they're not just found in cities is what I'm trying to say. They're also found in rural areas. And you can look up or contact a chapter leader in your area and uh, say, hey, do you know of any, you know, raw milk sources in the area? And they almost always know of a raw milk source in the area. In fact, I think it's part of the criteria of being a chapter leader that you have to know uh, the raw milk um, standards in your area, in your state, and uh, and uh, know where to, to, to lead people, to guide people as to where to go to, to get the raw milk. So um, those are two sources I would start with is that after you've, you know, tuned into this episode and listened to this episode and you're like, hmm, maybe I should try try raw milk. Honestly, if you don't have a severe dairy allergy, uh, I think it's worth exploring. There can be a lot of health benefits to raw milk. Now, it's not this like panacea. It's literally just a healthy food. Um, a lot of people today, they're like, oh, let me seek out raw milk because it can cure colitis and this and that. And Honestly, if that happens, it'll be like a needle in a haystack today. But can it be supportive to an ancestral healthy diet for somebody who is, you know, doesn't have uh, severe dairy allergies or, you know, who doesn't have severe sensitivities to dairy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I would encourage people to explore it. Of course, I always have to say you have to make your own health decisions and, uh, you know, I'm not giving you health or medical advice, right? But um, that's what I would recommend with regard to to dairy. And I really wanted to use this episode to teach you about pasteurization, raw milk, how it came into play. Um, what's the role of E. coli? How does it really get into our food? Uh, how could we reduce the risk of E. coli and other foodborne illness? What's the uh, uh, the money behind the E. coli, uh, you know, firms and business, right? It's big money. So um, also go to your, if you go to your local farmer's market, um, there could be raw milk farmer there or someone who knows, you know, hey, um, this is where you can get raw milk. So um, let's see. In the next episode, I'm going to talk all about, I'm going to go into more detail about foodborne illness, why they happen and how you can prevent this by making some adjustments to, you know, your own lifestyle and healing. Um, I'm going to talk about the uh, effect of milk on hormone health. We're told the absolute nonsense, um, I don't even know what to call it, nonsense information about um, beef and dairy and meat causing estrogen dominance and uh, it impacting hormone health in a negative way. It's total, total BS. I'm going to talk about, you know, what are some of the root causes of hormone health and 
and how does dairy and milk actually, you know, affect the hormones. And uh, uh, we'll deep dive into that during during that episode. So um, let's see if there's anything else I want to touch on today. Um, I feel like it's been a helpful episode. And, you know, I'm excited to dive into this process myself. I'm not going to be decided I'm not going to be a, a cow dairy cow farmer um <laughs> but I will be a, a a sheep farmer and um uh, for many reasons uh that I've decided you know cows seem like there's just a lot of maintenance required and they there's a lot of uh they're so big you know I love cows I'm a big fan I love cows I love their milk I love ribeyes, you know, there's, I love everything about a cow except for taking care of them. And to me, it's much more appealing to take care of sheep, but I love cow farmers, totally respect it. And, uh, will definitely, you know, purchase their, you know, meat and dairy from, uh, local farmers. But, um, so, uh, I think that is, that's all for today. And if you all have any, uh, uh, questions as a result of this episode or, um, want to connect more, feel free to send an email my way, uh, heather.shepherd at gmail.com and, uh, good luck on your raw milk search. I have a couple exciting announcements that I want to take a few minutes to, uh, uh, bring up with you guys. Number one is I just launched my ancestral diet and lifestyle program is now up on my site and this program teaches you how to use sunlight and an ancestral diet to support your health and honestly it's the only program that I know of at this time right now that combines light and diet as a path to optimal health and chronic disease prevention so uh, I would invite you to go over to my site heathershepherd.com h-e-a-t-h-a-r-s-h-e-p-a-r-d.com and check out the Ancestral Digestion Plan. You can learn more about it there. You can read through it. And um, if you are looking for support around chronic disease prevention or overcoming any nagging issues that you're struggling with, head on over there and and take a look at the program. I think it could really benefit you. And here's the thing. You don't have to wait around to get the program. You go on there and you're like, oh, yeah, this resonates with me. I think this will be a good fit for me in my healing. You go down to the bottom of the page. You purchase the program. It's in your inbox. And I'll mention this as well, that the program teaches you how to individuate your diet because we make this such a complicated issue. You individuate your diet based on the sunlight availability in your area, based on the season. These are the most important um, ways to individuate a diet. And of course, there's some other factors, but I teach you that. I walk you through that in the Ancestral Diet and Lifestyle Program. So hop over to my site, heathershepherd.com, to grab, uh, to grab your copy. Number two, super stoked, just launched a homeopathic program. Um, I'm taking applications for fall 2022 enrollment. This is a classical homeopathy-based program. It's live classes. These are not pre-recorded classes teaching you how to use classical homeopathy to help the people in your life, whether that be family members, friends, clients, overcome root causes of their health struggles. So I'm keeping enrollment low for very, very uh, ideal and specific reasons that support a, uh, an ideal learning environment. And you can learn more about the program at studyclassicalhomeopathy.com. And as I mentioned, I am taking applications at this time.
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. To learn more about my approach to health, to see all of my creations in the kitchen and all of my Sunlight RX tips, you can follow me on the gram at sunlight underscore RX and subscribe to this podcast to access weekly episodes.